Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about rituals, not only in the liturgy, but in our daily lives. And Chris gives us 10 ways to identify something as a ritual. So without further ado, episode 29 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, uh, we're going to do something different this week. Dennis and I are going to take a nap, and then Chris is just going <laughs> to talk off the cuff about whatever issues he's got about liturgy. That's what I usually do when Chris talks. <laughs> All right, uh, Chris, take it away. Um, well, well, with a we'll lead-in like that, I'm really excited about We'll this. check in uh, about 20 minutes. Uh-huh. All right, see you. All right. <laughs> well, you you might think this sounds boring, but this is uh, as as humanly exciting as anything you could imagine all right this is uh, ritualism no no no, not ritual <laughs> but rather the place uh in ritual in uh the lives of men and women whether they're catholics or non-catholics because the point is is that uh, you know when we talk about rituals is that many people do kind of get that glazy look and think ah ritual that's so you know it, it's a pejorative term to be called ritualistic or Mm-hmm. empty ritualism or something like that because we want the we want the spontaneity and the freedom to do whatever we wish right but the thing is is, is that it, and when it because when it comes to catholic liturgy i mean liturgy exists as ritual it's like revelation exists as text liturgy exists as ritual it's the clothing of christ's saving work uh dennis what's that line by saint leo the great what was visible in our savior has passed over into the mysteries. Into the mysteries, that's right. Which is the, the, the ritual celebration of which is what makes Jesus Christ and his saving uh, work present to us. So the ritual is a very privileged place where we come to encounter Christ. But again, uh, it kind of has, it's fallen on hard times. We did a, we did a, uh, a podcast uh, recently on these three elements of, uh, of a celebration where you have the clergy and the congregation and the rite all working in harmony uh, with each other. And Jesse asked the question about, uh, well, what about ritualism? And we said, well, there really isn't, I don't think, too much of a fear of, uh, of people being too subservient to the ritual anymore. Although but, I think there are people who are afraid that those who are attached to the extraordinary form are falling into a kind of ritualism. And so I think there's always the danger to fall into an anything goes or to fall into a ritualism, to hold in that, that middle ground, to understand what the right is for. It's always a challenge, but that's where the, that's where the truth of the things yeah. are. I guess what I'd like to do today is look at some of the characteristics of ritual to see, so that we can see in there some of ourselves in them. Because, again, the church's uh, liturgical ritual are very human things. Each, every one of us is a ritualistic animal, a ritualistic being. Yeah, I mean, just by nature, you know, we we want to follow patterns and rules and regulations, and like that's what we're naturally drawn to. Yeah, well, you know, even if you think you're above that and beyond that, you're not going to succumb to that. Think for a moment about your morning ritual. You mm-hmm. do the same things in the same order in the same way every single day. Um, 
I think I brush my teeth the exact same way every single day. Yeah. I shave the exact same way every single day. And I do them in the right, you know, in the same order. You know, but think of that morning where you don't have cream for the coffee or you're out of shaving. Oh, man. You're out of tooth. It, Everything's anyway, upside down. That's exactly the point. Everything is upside down. So you can't not. This would be a good experiment. Pick a day this week and try not to act ritually. You'd have to <laughs> you try really hard. You have to think about it. You couldn't do You'd it. You'd have to try really hard to do it. You couldn't do it. And I think our rights grow naturally from the best way to do things. I mean, you figure out over time, oh, this works better than that. And then you do it that way because it's good. It's not the same as being in a rut. I think a right and a rut are two different things. Yeah, or rote. Sometimes we do things out of rote. It's kind of mindlessly. Uh, right, rote, right, rote, rote. rote. What, what wrote? That's a book title. They're band name. Right, right, no book title. Right, right, wrote, rut? Yeah. A right does the same thing Ruh-roh. every time. <laughs> a rut means you you can't find any creative solutions to your problems, and by rote just means mindless, you know. But rights are not mindless; they are acquired wisdom of the church that grow out of the patterns of nature. Yeah. And the church has decided this works well. Yeah, and this is what I like to suggest: is kind of ten characteristics of these human rituals, which are also a liturgical rituals. And, oh, you know, just, let's do it. Ten think, characteristics. Well, well I mean, there, there's more. There's I mean, there's a lot of them. Well, no, ten. Ten's good. <laughs> well, this is like a David Letterman top ten top ten, top 10 ways to be ritualistic. But the thing Not, is, each of the in each of these instances, you could apply these. I submit to a secular ritual. Let's say uh, the, the rites surrounding the Fourth of July, right? You know the, the the brats, the fireworks, the parades, the colors. You know the music, the recounting the history, or your family rituals. Think of the rituals uh, of your family a vacation as a youth, or birthday, yeah, or birthday right? So you have the cake, you have the song, you have you know Grandma uh, Wilma comes over, you know everything, um, or or religious ones as well. So each of these characteristics, I think you'd find in uh, in any ritual. And the first one I, I'd say is that rituals are corporate. Uh, that is, they're group activities rather than private ones. Now, we talked about our morning ritual earlier, but generally when uh, sociologists and uh, liturgists and whatnot speak about uh, ritual, they think of it as a, a corporate action. It's done with others. It entails a relationship with others. Community participation is very uh, important. And so think about... Um, you know, what do they say is the, is, do, do people feel that the greatest loneliness throughout the year? Oh, the holidays, the holidays, because those are the days that you're usually with your family and friends. Yeah, traditionally, you've had, uh, you've been a part of a family, you've, uh, your kids have been around, yet when you're on your own at the holidays, that's when you're at your, at your loneliest, because it's at these points in the year that you've had these group activities, and now when you're not a part of it, uh, they're more felt. Or think of... Um, you know, you get together with a class reunion or family reunion, but you know, Uncle Bill didn't come this year. Uncle Bill. Uncle ah, Bill. He's crazy. That's a sad story. Everybody's got a crazy <laughs> Uncle Bill. Yeah. But you you detect that, right? Uh, the the absence of someone at a at a special event is more uh, keenly felt. So if you hang out with somebody on the holidays who doesn't have anybody to hang out with, would you call that a corporate work of mercy? Very possible, mm-hmm. yeah. It's mm-hmm. spiritual. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. Yeah. All right. And it seems to me, too, that a right actually makes corporate activity possible because everybody knows what to do. They've all done it before. You know, if you bring out the, you know, instead of candles on a cake, you bring out, you know, asparagus on a cake and you sing some song that no one's ever heard That's before. creative. How can everybody do that? I mean, yeah, it's never been done before. whoop de doo Well, yeah. And if I came, Chris, to your house on Thanksgiving and you reached over to me and you were holding a wishbone, I would know what to do. I know exactly what to do because of the, the ritual surrounding You've it. You've had that ritual formed in yourself through mm-hmm. your own. 
Right. And, and think about when you do get together with Thanksgiving, you know, uh, somebody brings this food and somebody brings that food. Mm-hmm. We, we go out to, to visit my family each year in, uh, uh, in December. And we've done this for 15 years. And it is, it is almost rote. Oh. <laughs> Everybody knows just what to do. And it makes the, the corporate, the group activity. You should invite me this year. I'll, I'll shake things you'll up. You'll mix it up. Yeah. Well, but, you know. In but if you really want to mix it up, you'll bring me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, on the, on the other hand, even though these things are group activities, that doesn't mean that uh, everyone is ready to plug into them. You know, because in our own culture, uh, not everybody wants group activity all the time. I mean, we have we have a certain uh, desire for uh, being left alone and individualism, and so sometimes the group uh, activity isn't uh, so much desired. But this is the first characteristic of liturgical rituals, civic rituals, family rituals, cultural rituals as their group activities. Uh, the second one I would say is that they're a natural part of the human condition. Um, as I said, try to get through the day without acting ritually sometime this week, and you'll find it would be, it would be inhuman, it would be unnatural to do that because you're naturally a, a, a ritual user. Um, I don't know if you remember about uh, Voltaire. He was an old friend of the, of the Catholic Church. And uh, when, he, when he died, when did he die? 1760s, 70s maybe? Uh, the Bishop of Paris wouldn't let him be buried inside Paris, so he had to be buried outside of the city walls. Well, uh, after the revolution, uh, what did they do? But they went and they exhumed his, uh, his body, his, his relics, as I think they mentioned it. And they, they carried his body in parade back into the city of Paris. And they stopped at various places along the path. You know, at the opera house where someone is performing one of his works, they stopped at the, I think he was imprisoned at the Bastille, perhaps. Oh, so and different all, parts of his life are... Anything that he was involved with, they would stop there. Right, but what, I mean, what do you see in this? The, this, the stations of the cross. Well, or, or maybe like a think of another uh, a bodily procession through the streets with altars along the way. It's, it's kind like of the Eucharistic mocking, procession. Yeah, whether intentionally or unintentionally, mocking sort of a, a Catholic ritualist uh, action. Yeah, like uh, on Corpus Christi, they would do that exactly. Yeah. And so, again, whether on their part intentionally or not, I mean, this was a very human thing to do—to go get his body. And to carry it in a celebratory procession and to stop at important places on the way to a destination, which was, you know, this was the Church of St. The Madeleine? No, Church of St. Genevieve, oh, Genevieve, I think. Yeah. Right. right, you're right. Genevieve. Which became the, uh, they kicked her out. The Pantheon. Yeah, the Pantheon, the, the building of, uh, of, of great men. Right, it was women. supposed to be a church to a saint and then the French Revolution turned it into a, a pantheon of great secular worthy scientists and so on. Hmm. Yeah. But again, the point, it's a very human thing to do this. Or think about uh, Christmas, go back to Christmas, uh, and the kids get out of their natural routine. What starts to happen to them? They get antsy. They get antsy. They break down. They get weepy. They cry. They fight. And what do they need? They need routine because it's in their nature to want. Or maybe they just had too much soda. Well, that's a combination (laughs) to it. All right, let's go to a third one. So first, they're group activities. Second, they're natural parts of human condition. And third, that they're bodily and incarnate things. They involve our senses and places and dress. Um, I might recall when uh, when Pope Francis was elected, all the talk was, well, what is he wearing? You know, is he wearing the shoes? Is he wearing the <laughs> who urn? Wore, is he... Who wore it best? That's right. Um, and so, you know, it's it's uh, all of these bodily things are, are, are also a part of, of uh, ritual. Think about a football game. 
Okay. You know, and, and the vesture that you wear and the lucky socks that you wear and all of these things. It's, it's uh, very much head, Definitely the yeah, You got to wear the cheese head. If you're going to the Packers game, you're going to take the same route and park in the same stall and eat the same food and drink the same beer and go in the same gate and sit in the same seat, wearing the same clothes, sing the same songs, the same chants. Oh, doesn't that sound boring? Who'd want to do that over and over again? You're going to follow the same rubrics. You're going to make sure the referee down there follows the same rubrics or there's going to be uh, there's going to be hell to pay if that doesn't happen, right? But no, this all of this uh, bodily things helps us to plug into uh, the, the human condition. Well, you lose your T-shirt. There's a traffic jam. You use you're, you got have to get a different kind of bra this time. You know, there's something uncomfortable Not about Not a different that. type of bra. Yeah, yeah Say it ain't so. Believe it. All right, a fourth one is that uh, uh, rituals are naturally repetitious. I mean, is there such a thing as a one-time ritual? I don't think so. I I think that kind of goes against the definition. (laughs) It does, exactly. They're supposed to be repetitious. They're supposed to be uh, familiar. And they encourage this type of participation. Like listening to a podcast every Wednesday morning on your drive to work. Exactly. Well, think. (laughs) do we have a, a podcast ritual beforehand? Um, I usually make some we, sort of awkward comment or... We try to sober you up. Yeah we, yeah, we definitely try to sober you up, give you a slap across the face and say, Chris, come on, we need you. But other than that, no, I don't think but so. But it's that very familiarity that allows you to go beyond it. You know, in the, in the church's ritual, if you've memorized the creed or if you know how to respond, the Lord be with you, you don't have to stop looking in the book and say, oh, the Lord be with you. You just get to do what you need to do. And it allows you to be more active in your participation. Well, yeah. For if, you, if the externals are so familiar, then the internal can just arise naturally without being, uh, the externals don't become a distraction that you have to look up all the time. Uh, you'll eventually start to read uh, this book, The Big Red Barn, to your daughter. Do you have it yet? Uh, no, we just have brown bear, brown bear. What do you uh, see? Yeah, so, I see it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, the big red by the big red barn in the great green field where there's a pink pig who was learning to squeal and there's a great pile of hay and a little pile of hay and that's where the children play but in this story the children are away and there's a great big horse and a very little horse etc and on every barn it's a weather vane of course a golden flying horse etc 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 that's impressive Chris sounds well, like ritualistic to me well I tell you try so you'll eventually you'll you'll memorize the book uh, brown bear or the big red barn and just to keep your sanity you'll mix it up a little I bit. already have good night moon uh, memorized <laughs> for Agnes so try to mix it up try this uh, just mix it up a little bit and by the big red barn there was a brown dog learning to squeal no it, no that's exactly yeah. right uh, because it takes kind of takes the, the the, the familiarity out mm-hmm. of it and the comfort out of it. And kids, and, like you said, are very into the rules and guidelines. You have to do it this way. And yeah, well, they want they want it, even yeah. though they might not want it. They do want it. Mm-hmm. They do want that ritual pattern because it speaks to their their humanity. All right, let's take another one. That a rituals, whether they're religious, whether they're civic, whether they're family, they uh, anticipate the future. They're kind of a dress rehearsal for uh, the future. Let's talk about kids again. What is it that kids play when they're little, but they play... They play adults. They play adults. They play what's going to happen in the future. They, they play Army or Star Wars or in, in Wisconsin, Aaron Rodgers, whatever as it might be. Or you hear the Ooh, really pious that, ones play mass when they're little. They become priests later on. Some of them do. Okay. So uh, rituals anticipate the future. And even liturgically, this is the case. Because when we come together at the mass, we're anticipating, uh, uh, we're anticipating heaven someday. All right. Let's take another one. Uh, rituals are meaningful. They're founded upon uh, uh, the history and the values and the group and the people uh, that have come in the past. And also they 
the things that are most ritualized are the things that are most meaningful in our lives. Um, you know, we talked about the morning ritual, brushing your teeth, which I suppose is important, but it's not as significant as uh, some of life's uh, greatest. Um, I was going to invite yeah. you to join me when I brush my teeth tomorrow. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> you, you told us to switch up our routine, you know, that, that would do it. Well, try it. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep me out of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you know, you, you really can't make ritual out of things that people don't care about. I mean, if, if a city hates their sports team and they win whatever the championship is for their sport, if nobody likes them, you can't say you must go out to the ticker tape parade. No one's going to show up. You know, Joseph Pieper's uh, book on festivity, he said that the, in the French Revolution, they tried to replace all the Catholic feasts with these feasts of the goddess of reason and all these people. And nobody wanted to come, you know, nobody cared. And they had to start making it a law that if you didn't come to this festival, you know, you could be a fine or whatever. It was just so not in the nature of what the people cared about that they didn't want to do it. And then the government had to force them uh, to do it. So rituals grow out of what people value. Yeah. Isn't, isn't uh, the communist May Day celebration one of the things he mentions in that book? You know, the, the, the great workers uh, holiday on on May 1st. That and then they have to, to go to work and do this celebration <laughs> they don't want to do on their own holiday. I just thought the clever reaction to that was, uh, it was Pius XII who, I guess in the 1950s, I think, right? Uh, declared May 1st uh, the, the Feast of St. Joseph the Workman, kind of in, in reaction to, uh, to the conference. Right? People do care about St. Joseph. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's life's most important things, passages or marriages or the birth of children, funerals, uh, you know, the Knights of Columbus have the signs, keep Christ in Christmas, because the, the meaning of Christmas is being, we're risking losing that meaning from, uh, from all of our uh, Christmas rituals. All right, a few more. Hang in there. Uh, number seven is that uh, rituals maintain social and family and group cohesion. They produce unity when you act in a ritual way. So I think if, if we can bring up the Knights of uh, Columbus again, uh, you know, we kind of limp along, but we have a, uh, we do uh, an excellent pancake breakfast, right? So everybody comes along and uh, we all do our work. And after that pancake breakfast, you know, we're a more integral, cohesive, lively group than we were before because doing these uh, types of uh, activities brings this uh, cohesiveness. Or think of the sports fans that come to a particular team. They come together, they're wearing the same clothes, cheering the same cheers, singing the same songs. And when it gets to the end, there's a, there's a certain camaraderie that, oh, yeah. uh, that exists. I went, uh, I went to uh, the first game of the NLCS. And I don't know the people that we were sitting next to, but when the Cubs did well, we were all high-fiving each other and cheering together. It's you close, know. closer yeah. than any brother you have. Right? It, it, sure, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It, it's through those ritual actions that, uh, that that's one of the ways that the, that the unity uh, comes about. All right, number eight. Uh, rituals grow organically uh, from forms that uh, already... This is the point you were making. They come from somewhere. They're hard to invent just uh, out of the air. Um, now you've been married a few years, Jesse. Think about new family rituals. Now I think when uh, Marguerite and I were married 18-ish or so years ago, right? So you have a new family and you want to start kind of new family rituals. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that it was hard just to invent them. They come a little bit from your wife's family, yeah. a little bit from your family, but mm -hmm. they don't just poof, drop out of the sky. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I often think about that. My dad gave us all like weird nicknames and things like that. And then you're like, oh, we got to, I would love to do nicknames from, for kids. And 
But you can't just say like, oh, I'm going to call you Bebop or whatever, you know. It's got to come out of something that's natural, you know. I am going to call you Bebop. Bebop. (laughs) I will call you Rocksteady. So, okay. (laughs) I even think liturgically, you know, one of the hardest things to do in a parish is RCIA. Because even though it's a restoration of of an early patristic catechumenate, for all of us alive today, it may as well be invented from scratch because it came from, at least in our memories, from nowhere. Sure, it was around you know 1,700 years ago, 1,500 years ago. So it has the feel, the flavor of being something that is brand new. It doesn't have the connectedness, the connectedness to the roots that uh, came before it. In any case, uh, a ninth one is that they are without purpose. They're not practical. They're a waste of time. You know, I, it means they're filled That's with kind meaning. That's a funny one. <laughs> yeah, they're filled with meaning, but they serve no practical end because the end of liturgical rituals are their own, their own. To go to the family reunion, to go to a mass, to go to a Cubs game, to go to a Packers game, whatever it is, um, it's it's a good in itself to do. It's it doesn't affect, affect another any other aspect of your life. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, you don't uh, go to a Cubs game to be healthier, better looking, to, smarter. To get dinner. <laughs> yeah, you're not, you're not like, oh, I got to go to dinner, so we better go to a Cubs game. It doesn't make right. sense. It has all this fruitful byproduct. You didn't say, I, I'm going to the Cubs game so I can be hugging a stranger next to me in, in the no. seats. That was the byproduct. But mm-hmm. the Cubs game, I mean, ultimately, what's it about? Guys hitting a ball with a stick and running around. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not about anything except the delight of the game. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in a homily last uh, October, Pope Francis told people to go waste time in front of Jesus in the tabernacle. Well, waste time. Mm-hmm. This is what he's getting at. Is, is it, it doesn't, to, to be before God in a ritual activity uh, doesn't have this utilitarian end. So, yeah, you remember the movie uh, Mozart? Or, or, uh, Amadeus, Amadeus, Amadeus is what it was yeah. called. And the, the, uh, the Emperor Joseph II of Austria, he's the one where the, the young Mozart came in, he played this little ditty in the uh, Emperor Joseph II. See, he was called an enlightened despot. He was an enlightened ruler, right? So unless it was useful, it should be got, done away with. And so Mozart plays this little thing and he says, oh, yes, very nice, but uh, too many notes. Just take some out, right? Because he didn't appreciate <laughs> what it was all. This is impractical to have all this stuff. He would legislate on candles in the mass, I mean, what practical purpose do candles have in the mass? Is it for light? Is it for heat somehow? No, they're purposeless. They're mm-hmm. useless. So he legislated in his kingdom that candles should not be used in the mass. At, at, at one point, they probably had them for light, right? Very possibly. Oh, yeah. But you know, generally speaking, whenever a thing is festive, there's a whole bunch of sacrifice that goes with it. I mean, you think about a person's wedding and... It's a lot of money. It's a lot of flowers. Yeah. It's a lot of food. It's very extravagant, and it's kind of wasteful. But it's how we know important things are important in ritual uh, festivity. Mm-hmm. Let's go to a tenth one, uh, and that is that uh, rituals are often associated. We hinted upon this before with the critical moments in life. They 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 mark especially life's most important times and occasions. Like if um, you were to go to the same bar after the birth of every one of your children. Which we in fact have. <laughs> I, I know, I know. You get I think the same it, drink. I think it's so funny that you have a. You, if you have a specific place that you go to every time you, your uh, wife has a child, you then, have enough kids. You have a lot that. of kids. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> I think of um, 
you know, they they have this twenty four hours of the Christmas story uh, around Christmas. Time. Oh yeah. Okay, and you think of that uh, time where they where Ralphie and the family they went to get the Christmas tree, right? And they're driving back, and the tire uh, goes flat, right? And the dad Fun. says, <laughs> and the dad says, timing. And he gets out there, and the mom says, Ralphie, go out and help your father. And he's like, this is a great moment. This is kind of my ritual initiation into a new stage mm-hmm. in my life because he gets to help his dad to change the tire. Of course, it didn't really work no. too well. Or Dennis, I don't know if they still do this at the seminary, but it used to be when they, I think, when they would go from. Uh, uh, college seminary to theology seminary and they would start to wear the roman collar there would be this uh, tie burning ceremony yeah. is when this they became ritual. deacons and they oh is that it okay wear the roman collar for the first okay time. so they would uh, there was this ritual of burning the ties because this signifies are your ex-girlfriend or something <laughs> well like it's that. a sign of your <laughs> secular life in fact i remember at one of those tie burnings one guy didn't just bring a tie he used to be a, a postal worker <laughs> he brought his whole Male. No way. U.S. male <laughs> uniform. I wore this for 15 years and I'll never wear it again. And everybody cheered and he threw it in the fire. And he's like, I'm going to wear a different uniform for the rest of my life. But see, there's this externalization of his delight. I'm going to be a priest now and burning this thing is part of the ritual of passing from one stage to the next. Yeah. You know, so in these 10 things, they're group activities, they're natural parts of the human condition, they're bodily, they're repetitious, they anticipate the future, they're filled with meaning yet they're non-utilitarian. They grow organically from from forms already before us. They keep group cohesion and they mark critical points in life. I think from, you'll see from a lot of the examples that we used, most of them uh, were not liturgical examples. They were not uh, Catholic uh, liturgical examples. They were very human examples. And what uh, the church does in her liturgy, because it's the the ritual celebration of Christ's saving work, is all of these uh, characteristics and attributes of human ritual are present there too. All we could say all of these things about liturgical ritual uh, as well. So, you know, again, we um, we're tempted perhaps to think that ritual is a bad thing because it restricts us. Uh, it uh, lacks creativity. Um, and, and a number of reasons that uh, postmodern people, including ourselves, might reject them. But uh, in truth, what the, the church is doing a great service in tapping into our humanity and using ritual because it's... It makes uh, sense. It's organic. Yeah. Right. It Nobody wants sense. to go to Mass and not know what to do. You want to go to Mass and it'd be so familiar that it's like a family ritual and then you can enter into this intimate union with Christ, not constantly being drawn out of that intimate union by learning the ritual every time because it's different every time, but you can rest in the arms of God through the very familiarity of the words of the Mass. And if there are donuts afterwards... Great. All the better. Exactly. Very bodily, incarnate, Mm -hmm. anticipating Mm -hmm. the future. And I'm sure this time of year, they'll have cider as well. So that's that's a double win in my book. Double bonus. Yeah, right. All right, well... uh, I anticipate the future. There is a liturgy question coming. (laughs) There is a liturgy question. We do that every time, so we know it's coming. All right, let's answer it. Corporately. Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. 
And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, gentlemen, last week we answered a question about having an outdoor mass. And after that, we had some people asking us about having a wedding outside, um, because I think that's a frequent question. Lots of people want to have weddings outside on a beach in a forest or something like that. So I guess the, the next step is, um, can you have a wedding outdoors? Mm. Can you? Should you? Do you? The canon that speaks to this is canon 1118. The first uh, section says, A marriage between Catholics or between a Catholic party and a non-Catholic baptized party is to be celebrated in a parish church. It can be celebrated in another church or oratory with the permission of the local ordinary or the pastor. Now, the second point, though, does say a local ordinary can permit, or bishop, can permit a marriage to be celebrated in another suitable place. But this, in my experience, uh, even if it's limited, almost never happens. So requests for marriages to be in the park or on the beach or in a hotel, uh, ballroom or something like that are almost, uh, as far as I can tell, never granted. And I think the reason behind this is that, and, and notice what it says, it's between baptized persons. You know, So this is a sacrament and it's a sacrament of, ultimately the, the great mystery is the marriage between Jesus Christ to his bride, which is the church. And a church building, if it's done uh, appropriately, should be an expression of this heavenly wedding banquet. And so and the whole wedding question in, in theology is that humanity and God, to a certain degree, were separated at the fall, and the mission of Christ's restoration is to bring them back together. So in the book of Revelation, the phrase is, the wedding feast of the Lamb has begun. That means Christ has joined himself fully now to his bride, which is the church. And so the human wedding is actually a, a microcosmic experience of that. And so where this wedding feast happens is in the heavens or in heaven, heavenly Jerusalem. The church building is the symbol or the sacrament of that reality. So it's just tossing out the, the proper place for the wedding banquet in its theological sense if you don't have a wedding in a church. Yeah, as beautiful as uh, the beach or the park might be, uh, it's not as beautiful as this uh, heavenly marriage between Jesus and his bride who is prepared to welcome him. And so the church building reminds the bride and groom of what the reality of marriage is and helps to helps them to enter into that mystery more fully. All right. Well, uh, I think that answers our question. So if you want to ask the Liturgy Guys a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.